Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Villain News Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Delaney, and today we are speaking with a man who is literally getting his PhD in bike racing. We are speaking with Rob Stanley, USA cycling coach, who is studying for his PhD at Leeds Beckett University, uh, specializing in the track cycling omnium and the tactics of bike racing. But first, we are joined with another man who has a veritable PhD in bike racing, James Start in France, who's been covering bike racing for more than three decades and is just back from the Tour de la Provence. How are you, James? Good to see you, sir. Yeah. Hey, Ben. Thanks for having me. Always always uh, glad when I come back from Tour de Provence. It's actually one of my favorite races. Uh, it's a new race. It's only been, I think it's in its seventh year. As soon as they announced it and I saw the first edition, I was like, I want to be there. And um, so I've been going every year. It's just, it's gorgeous, obviously. It's Provence, right? Sure. And um, and there's always great racing. And it was again, the cases here. There was great racing. And one th- I enjoyed many things about it. Uh, the visuals, certainly, yeah, seeing sunny, warm France right now in, in mid-February. But also the, the mix of high-level riders um, in various forms. Like this, I think it was stage two, uh, Brian Cocard run, won the sprint right in front of Julian Alaphilippe. Uh, not too much of a, a surprise seeing him up in the mix, but as, you know, two-time road world champion, but then who has a punchy sprint. But then right behind, Philippe Ogana. Uh, time trial specialist who won the opening prologue, and then just a few riders back, Nairo Quintana, <laughs> who was you know showed his ambition for for later in the stage. So you've got the you know lots of specialists. Granted, it's early in the season, um, but but these are the world's best uh, doing their things. So I thought that I thought that was an interesting mix of folks. And I certainly another thing I enjoy is uh, you showing off your your photo skills. Um, you were feeding me uh, galleries of the. Uh, winner's bikes from every single stage. And that's something I enjoyed being able to geek out on, on all those details. So listeners, you should go, go check those out on villainos.com. You can see the, you know, up close and personal with, with the bikes of the winner of, of every stage. What were some of your, your takeaways from Provence, James, as far as like what will, what you expect to see for the rest of the season, or at least the next few months of the season? Well, I don't, I don't know that, there's, you know, it's it's always hard to make big takeaways as as, as tempting as it is from the early season. How about a small takeaway then? <laughs> um, French teams rode well. I mean, Kofidis. I mean, uh, they've been crying for wins, and they're they're racing at the front, taking control, getting Cocard his win. Uh, total direct energies. I mean, they didn't win, but they've been they were. I mean, the first day, uh, first day was the time trial, right? And you get the world champion. Ghana winning it. So that just shows like the interest in this race is growing. And the second day, and the second day, you know, we go into the swamplands, the marshes of the Camargue, which are just visually spectacular, but big wins. And that play, that, that race just blew apart. I mean, just exploded. It was a big Belgian fest day. I mean, Van Mark got second. So, (laughs) right. Um, Anytime Van Mark gets second, you know, what's, you know, there's some, something happening that's very Flemish. And it was and people all over the road. The Total Direct Energies team, they had three or four guys up there, right, uh, in that race. And, and, and Pierre Latour, he has not been out of the top 10 on a single day in any race he's done this year, save one. And he's done, I think, three races. I think he did the Marseilles, the opening, then he did a Toile de Bessege, and then he came here. And he's been in the top 10 on every stage. Um, so, he, you know, that's a guy who in 2018 was the best young rider in the Tour, 
who's kind of been lost for the last few years, he's coming back. But I, I think certainly you're seeing, you know, uh, with teams like that um, and Kofi Deese, again, you know, these guys are, they're riding well. So that, that's one takeaway. Um, Another second is, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say one thing I found encouraging from the American perspective was uh, Matteo Jorgensen for a movie star. Sure, you know, being up there, yeah, making the split on the on the Belgian crosswindy day. Um, that that takes you know uh, strength and oh, situational awareness. You don't get lucky on days like that. No, you've got to put yourself in the right place with your head and your legs, and that was that was uh, encouraging to see. And then also how he finished on the final, you know, mountaintop climb there. Yeah, that was tremendous. Now that that, fir- that that first day was like you know I mean crosswinds everybody knew exactly the turn in the road where the shit was going to happen uh-huh. and and what happened they took that turn and Ghana just went to the front and just drove it and he just like big Indian file and all of a sudden it starts snapping into little bitty pieces you know everybody wanted to be in that front group but only a couple people could so yeah I mean Jurgensen made it up there that's you know, amazing that was you had to be really strong and really good to be there that day and he was. Yeah, and then came in. You know, uh, was he was he third on the on the final stage? I forget his. I think he was. Let me think about that. Yeah, certainly, certainly top ten, certainly top ten, and then was and ended up like fourth overall. Yeah, just a few seconds out of you know, the overall podium. Um, you know, and yeah, I mean, every every day it's it's you know when it's that that's only three and a half stages. You got a prologue, which is always spectacular, and then you got this crosswind day. Then you had this. Could be a sprint day, could be a puncher day, but Kofidis really kept it together for Cocard. And then you have the big climbing day, and that climbs hard. And it was really cold, glacial kind of winds, even though the sun was warm. Um, so it was like it was pretty grueling. I mean, you had to be good to be at the front for three days. Really good. For sure. And we saw Quintana ride away from everyone there. Alaphilippe went with him for a bit. Was was nearly there. But uh, not not quite, not quite. That's his, it's his first race of the year, being able to hang with Quintana on a climb like that, you know, whatever. It's funny. I was talking with Yvonne Ledanois, his um, his DS, you know, and he's the guy who orchestrated. He was at Movistar. He's a French di- director sportif, but he was at BMC, and then he went to Movistar. No, the, the universe. He was at Movistar, and then went to BMC, and then he went to Arkea. And he was the guy who orchestrated Quintana coming, or one of the guys that was really crucial to get Quintana to come to this French team. And he's a friend of mine. So I went to him to get the bike picture for you, which I actually, you know, I've been really enjoying doing the uh, bike tech pieces with you because you, I actually love photographing the bikes because they're such a thing of beauty, but I don't know them like you do. So we have fun with that. And so then, you know, I was like, oh, well, now the bike's done. Can I just get Nairo? You know, can we just talk a little bit about Nairo? And he's like, because he's looking really good. I mean, he might be in 10th place going into that race, but he's like 27 seconds back, something like that. I mean, this is, he could do it, right? And goes, and Nairo's really good, he said, but this climb is just not going to be hard enough for him. Not hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, Eva, I thought we were friends. Yeah. You, know, <laughs> you know, and everybody's looking to Philippe, and Philippe's trying to say, you know, uh, don't count me for the general here. And, you know, he wasn't, what didn't have, he couldn't go with Nairo, that's for sure. Huge win for Nairo though, huh? I mean, I mean, the guy hasn't really done much since he won the Tour de Provence two years before. Had a lot of injuries last year, but, you know, I mean, there were just been stories every week, it seems like, is Nairo finished? I mean, you know, he's not. Yeah. Yeah. That was encouraging to see. That was definitely a takeaway. Yeah. And Alaphilippe, yeah, even though he's not targeting it, it's early. He's still on flying form, right? Was, you know, up there in the prologue time trial, you know, right up there second in the sprint and then right up there at the, the sharp end of a, a very bitter, steep climb. Yeah. It was a, it was a brilliant, 
brilliant climb is a hard climb. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the race is attracts international fields more and more. Um, they're turning team pro teams away because they don't have the budget for, for them. Um, but um, there's, they could have, they could have a pro tour level field in there if they had the, the, the funds for it. Um, but they don't. Um, but especially, you know, with COVID and stuff, there's races internationally being canceled. And I think people are, I think there's certainly guys just saying, do we have to really travel so far uh, for, to get our early season condition? And, and there's a lot of great races in, 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 in France and Spain and stuff. We can just do it right here and stay here and stay in climatized and all. And so for the last couple of years, you know, you've seen races like Etoile de Bessege, uh, uh, some of the Spanish races, races like Provence getting really, really good fields. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I love the tradition. You know, I love the, the classics and the grand tours. I think we all do, but it's also fun to see, yeah, new exciting races pop up with some of the world's best. And there's no reason why that those can't be just as exciting as some of the, the storied historical ones. Yeah. So what's, 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 uh, what's next on your calendar? Uh, well, I'm going to be down with Peter Sagan, uh, Friday. Uh, he's going to be, uh, making his, uh, return to racing with his new total energies team. You know, I was talking about total a little while ago. That's even before Peter shows up. Right. So, but I get the sense, you know, they, they got a, Peter brought a big group of people with them. And I get a sense the guys that have been on the team for a while want, really want to prove themselves to Peter as well. Um, and they want to show that they, that what they're worth and they've been racing like that. And Peter's been in what Tenerife, I think it is, uh, uh, for the last three weeks, uh, you know, trying doing an intensive training camp. Uh, I know he wants to show that, you know, he's not through. I, I don't believe he is for a second, but he's going to want to show that he can race. Uh, so I'll be with him, uh, with the team, uh, Friday. And then, um, uh, most likely our Deshin drone classic. Great. I will look forward to following your, your coverage and your photography from, from here in Colorado. Best of luck to you. I hope you don't uh, lose another camera off the back of a motorbike the way you did this, this past weekend. Oh. I have to do a lot more, uh, bike, uh, galleries for you. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to see how long we can keep the string alive. Huh? Yeah. Just, you know, listeners. So yeah, thus far, James start is batting 1000% of, of four stage winners. He delivered pro bikes for all four so yes please please keep that going and we can uh, maybe start a little betting thing on the side just basing on, on which bikes profiles you send in so all right thanks james all right thank you now listeners many of you have been studying bike racing for many a year many a decade but how many among you can say you are a doctorate of bike racing my next guest, Rob Stanley, is wrapping up his PhD at Leeds Beckett University in England, studying exactly that, studying bike racing. Welcome to the show, Rob Stanley. How are you? Thank you. Uh, very pleased to be here and excited to have a conversation with you about this. Yeah. So now th you're a very smart person. So this conversation might be difficult because I am not. So you're going to have to break it down for me simply here. So just, you know, starting with the title of your PhD, Exploration of Determinants of Performance in the Elite Men's Track Cycling Omnium. So the, the Olympic Omnium event, which is this year, was a four-year event. So I'm hoping on this show you can, you can break down for us, you know, certainly what you're studying and why and how that relates to elite-level athletes you work with. You know, you, you're the, uh, a performance scientist at USA Cycling now. Uh, you've held that same role with the uh, you know, Jap Japanese Cycling Federation. But I'm also hoping you can maybe give us uh, amateurs some takeaways as to you know what what you've learned and how that can can apply. But you know maybe, maybe let's just start at the start with 
with your motivation for this PhD? You know, what what were you? What are you hoping to accomplish by studying the omnium? Yeah, uh, my motivation, I guess, has changed actually in in the process of doing it. Now, now it's very much uh, provide a way of understanding the bike race that maybe hasn't been done before and a, a new perspective on it rather than uh, just taking a guess at, at how how the bike race is raced. Um, the, the original motivation was very much uh, I, wa- I wanted to coach, I wanted to be uh, an elite cycling coach and uh, I, I'm not an ex-elite athlete um, so I saw my, my way in was to be to, to show that I can be the very best at something was to literally try to be the very best at something and try to understand this in a way that hasn't been understood before. Um, but yeah, that, that's changed now. Thankfully, I, I got some opportunities and I went to Japan and now I'm in, uh, well, uh, working with America. I have, uh, have those opportunities. So my motivations for the PhD changed um, quite a bit in, in terms of what I'm trying to get out of it. It's no longer, the, the output's no longer a job. The output's uh, actually trying to implement what I'm learning into into helping develop athletes. Yeah. So I was just, you know, speaking to Benjamin Sharp, another coach you're familiar with is, you know, like you worked with USA cycling, been to the Olympics, coached athletes, you know, he was you know, Jennifer Valente's uh, personal coach. And I was asking him, so what's your take on Rob? He's like, Oh, he's so smart. Like not blowing smoke. Like the guy, he's super sharp guy. Um, and, and, and so yeah, to your point of, you know, trying to prove yourself, you know, that part has certainly been done. What I think is is fascinating is the balance of you know what you can study in bike racing, what you can break down, what you can measure, right? And then what is like gut feel, because you know it seems like that that's part of part of what you're trying to achieve here is like what what can we how can we break down bike racing into chunks, measure those chunks, you know improve on those chunks, and then put all those chunks together and then win the bike race, and then you know but then sometimes there's dumb luck or there's just a split second decision, you know, like you were coaching Gavin Hoover at uh, the Olympics where he raced the Omnium. And then he went on to win the, the first ever uh, USA track uh, champions league. And, and that was obviously a lot of talent, a lot of planning preparation. And then, but then sometimes there's split second decisions. So like, how, how do you study, how do you study those pieces? So yeah, break those chunks down for us that, you know, the performance pieces of, you know, wattage outputs at different, uh, time durations and then just the the gut instinct. How do you study and improve and measure that? Of course, uh, I think there's a few things. I think by by measuring it, um, you are, it, it's important to understand what what has gone before to recognize patterns and averages and things like that. But in in learning those things, it doesn't necessarily tell you how to win the bike race, but it teaches you what has gone before so that you can adapt those those magic moments that you're talking about to uh if you if you know what's gone before it's easy to understand what's likely to come in the future um in in terms of measuring it the way i've kind of broken it down is broken it into three three component parts so there's a physical aspect of how fast do i actually need to be to, to win the bike race um there's the there's a tactical element of uh how do i need to especially in something like the omnium how do i need to position myself amongst my opponents to be able to to beat them when when it counts so like in a points race uh, at the end of each sprint or whatever um and then uh there's also the strategic element of how do i pace this across uh well across even sprints in the points race or across the whole points race that so that 
I've still got something left in the tank at, at the end so that um, you, need, you can still be earning points towards the end of the bike race as well as the back of the bike race. So th those are really the three component parts that I've broken it down into. Uh, I guess what I'm finding mostly is that the, the physical is a non-negotiable. Um, if you can't do the physical, there's no point pacing in a certain way and there's no point doing the tactics in a certain way because you're not in the bike race. So that, that's your ticket to ride. But there's also eight to 10, well, certainly in the men's elite Omnium, there's eight to 10 guys that on any given day have the physical ability to win it. So it's not just being the fittest guy in the race is not allowing you to win the bike race, right? Um, but, but you still need that ticket to ride. Um, so, so what is allowing you to win the bike race is uh, things like positioning. Um, the, pay, the pacing is, is similar. Uh, the pacing and the positioning are kind of intertwined. Like how, when you decide to put in your effort is largely dependent on what other people in the bike race are doing. And there's this idea of the, the bunch in itself is dynamic and has its own mind and uh, decides to do things. And you can either respond to what that dynamic bunch is doing or you can try to dictate what that dynamic bunch is doing um and that that's very much a while something that i've now developed into my coaching philosophy about if, we, if we're going to go into these races if you've got if you've got that physical ability uh we're going to go in and we're going to we're going to dictate like we know the we know the race has a series of patterns that might unfold uh if you've studied and studied and studied them uh you you understand how them patterns are unfolding in front of you and you can make a decision accordingly. So you're not trying to assess when you're in the race situation, the athletes going from trying to assess 10 different options to thinking, Oh, actually I know there's only two here because this is the pattern that's unfolding in front of me. Um, and that's really where I hope that it gives an advantage. Yeah. Yeah. My idea that you would have a robotic mind that could process a whole slew of if then statements, right? Like if I see this, then I do that based on, as you said, like everything that's gone before, and, and then it's just, a, uh, you're not having to make up your best case scenario. You have all those best case scenarios are just sorting through, but yeah, that's, that's tough to do. And, and just as a fan watching, you know, with the Omnium watching some of the races, it's hard to keep track just of the points <laughs> for me. And I, and I, and I'm just sitting there by the you know side of the track, not, uh, you know, 185 beats a minute flying around. So that's, that's impressive that you can store those type decisions away and it almost becomes like muscle memory. Um, I want to talk about the ticket. You said, you know, you got to have certain physiological uh, markers to just get in the game. Um, first, I want to talk about something that Gavin Hoover said. Uh, he said that you, Rob, have changed how he sees a race. And he says, Rob, help me see the races in these very achievable sections that make conceptualizing what needs to be done much easier then try to picture the entire race at once. He says, with that idea in mind, we've also tailored my training to how I want to ride those races in a way that I've never done before. And uh, with Rob's take on the a data back system, that makes things easier to do by breaking it down into chunks. So I thought that was a, an interesting perspective from from Gavin that, that you know, he's not trying to see the entire bike race. It's like, well, let's do this lap and then the next lap. And, and maybe it's not like a lap by lap, but it's, you know, achievable chunk so but yeah let's go i'm jumping around a bit let's go back to that that ticket what is it what does a ticket cost rob to get into some of these uh, olympic level events you know like what's what sort of power thresholds are you looking for for different durations the uh interestingly one thing that i've done is uh step back from from power i think of like uh performances layers of an onion and uh the, the most outer layer is 
simply how fast are you going, right? If you if you go faster than your opponent, you most likely win the bike race. Um, and and speed is made up of a combination of power and aerodynamics. So in terms of identifying the the performance demand, I think the first thing you need to identify is well, how fast do I need to travel? And then you can then you can achieve that in one of two ways, right? You can either increase the amount of power and stay the same aerodynamically, or you can reduce the drag and keep the same amount of power and you you achieve it. But either way, the performance demand is the speed. Um, so I've really tried to nail down uh, what the speed demands are before nailing down the power demands, because then that allows us to uh, alter that athlete to athlete. If you've got uh, an athlete that's six foot two versus an athlete that's five foot six, the CDA is probably going to be quite different, but sure. the speed demand is the same. C- CDA, yeah. CDA being a measurement of aero drag. So, you know, a lot of listeners are now familiar with like the watts per kilo breakdown of like how much power you're doing versus the, the resistance of gravity, your body. And then, yeah, and track, you know, watts over CDA, how much power you can do versus how much the air is slowing you down. And the, the smaller, the slipperier you get, the faster you can go. Yeah. And those, those watts per CDA numbers are crazy because it, it ends up inflated to being this huge number. And you look at it and you're like, oh, this is crazy because you're so used to watts per kilo as being like five watts per kilo. Uh, watts per CDA is a huge number. So it gets really confusing when you delve into that as well. <laughs> um, but yeah, on, on the original question, uh, trying to trying to know the speed demand, I, I found is more important because then that's more applicable uh, across athletes. So uh, as Gav said, one of the things we we have done is broken races down uh, to into component parts so we can work out uh, how, how to win the bike race overall. And also it gives him this opportunity that he doesn't have to think about the whole bike race overall. So psychologically, even within the race, I think it gives you an advantage. So again, the Omnium points race, for us, as an example, uh, you can treat it like 10 scratch races because um, it's 10, 10 times 10 lap scratch races. Uh, and if you if you go through each one of those thinking about uh, positioning and pacing, um, there's only two things you have to think about. You just have to think about two things ten times. Um, so in terms of lining up for a lining up for a sprint, uh, if you know the the regular patterns of what what that looks like in terms of how people have earned points before, um, you can you can position yourself in a way that's going to allow you to best use what you have to uh, to uh, to earn them points in the sprints. And also in turn, typically, if people talk about, oh, taking a lap, when can I take a lap? When can I take a lap? If you ride in the sprints and you ride in the front of the bike race to ride for the sprints, typically if a lap's going to go, you're in position to take it anyway. Um, so that, that's really, I think, what Gav's alluding to when he talks about how we've broken it down into races is really breaking it down into smaller races within the race. Uh, and each of those add, adds up to and, uh, the, the whole race together. Sure, and maybe you could you know break us break it down the what the, the four events of the Omni. You've got the scratch, the tempo, the elimination, and the points. You know, scratch is most straightforward for for road racing fans. First across the line wins. Yeah, so the tempo uh, is the fir- the first five laps are free, so everyone's just riding around, and then uh, thereafter, the first rider over the line every lap earns a point. Um, which is uh, a crazy concept because you think, well, why, if one rider's just on the front, why don't they just stay there? But um, that's quite a hard demand to stay there for 25 laps. Um, So the the tactics of that one, I think, uh, even even the guys that have been riding it, because that that was only came in in 2017. Uh, So I think even the guys that are still uh, racing that one are still working that one out. I'm not sure anyone's fully uh, fully mastered (laughs) that one yet. Uh Um, 
the the elimination is uh, once every other lap. The the last the the rear wheel of the last rider of the line is the rider that's uh, eliminated uh, until there's uh, one rider left essentially. Um, and then the points race is a uh, hundred. Well, for the men it's a hundred laps. For the women it's eighty laps. Um, and then every ten laps they have uh, a sprint lap, and the first, second, third, and fourth rider over the line. Uh, at the end of each of those sprint laps earns five, three, two, and one points, um, and those points get added to the tally that you've earned in the from the from the first three races. And then there's also the option of taking a bonus lap. So if you take a, a lap on the field, and uh, then you also earn an extra bonus twenty points. Now, tactics within a single race can change as the race develops. Like you can go in with a certain plan, and then you get lapped, and now your plan's different. And you know, within the Omnium, uh, how you do in one race will alter potentially perhaps likely what you know your tactics are for the the races to come how much communication do you have with with your riders in between races and and how much is already set by the time you get there like okay we've been doing the homework for for weeks and months and sometimes years is it already set and you're just reinforcing or is there still like some real-time coaching and and rejiggering of the plans the the time that you get with the riders is actually a lot less now. Uh, there is still some time. Um, so I think at the Olympic Games, the whole the whole Omnium was in a three and a half hour, hour schedule. But when an hour and fifteen of that is racing, there's not an incredible amount of time in the in the in betweens to have those conversations, especially when there's other races going on uh, and the pits is a a very busy place. Um, but yeah, you do get some opportunity to have a have a conversation. I guess part of my philosophy that I've developed with this is, uh, again, going back to understanding the bike races, that we race the bike race, not necessarily uh, the the other people within the bike race. Um, so as you go through the races, the race is almost done. Uh, it's, it's interesting. Some people want to see the video from the last race of, uh, of, of how it unfolded, but you're not going to race that same race again. So it almost, to me, it almost doesn't matter. Like the race is done. You can't change it. You can go back and analyze it. Uh, in a week's time or whatever, ready for, for the next race that you go to, the next World Cup or the next World Championships or whatever. But at the time, I don't I don't know that you actually earn anything from from watching the previous race back or even learn anything. So I think the context of where you are in the standings uh, it, it is important because you it's part part of racing the the Omnium is you make some allegiances with some other riders at times when it's convenient and then their rivals at other times when it's convenient. So in terms of things like being aware of who's going to, who's likely to launch an attack to try to take a lap, it's good to know who's around you so that if, if that person does go to take a lap, you probably want, want to be with them. So I don't think you can be completely naive to it, but I think if you go into the whole, whole race, the whole Omnium uh, as a series of processes uh, and a series of, bike races where you're going to race the bike race then then really your mindset shouldn't change to, uh, even if the even if the context of where you're expecting to be isn't necessarily where you are at that moment in time so if i'm hearing you correctly you're saying it's important to be aware of the favorites but not necessarily uh you shouldn't be f- um completely focused on them and basing your tactics on what they do you should make your own race so to speak do you think that's I, I would, sorry. okay? Yeah. Sorry. Do you think that's more the case in track racing than road racing, where you know, like there could be not just a favorite rider, but a whole team, you know, with a, a lead out train for a sprint? Where are there similarities, and where are there differences between track racing and road racing? Yeah, I think uh, <laughs> I have I haven't studied bike racing. Uh, 
road racing quite to the same level. Um, only sort of looked at what what else exists in the literature aside from from what I've done, um, and and then watched a lot of bike races as being a fan. Um, so I haven't got any empirical data to to make that call on, but the the team element certainly adds another another element right when you've got uh five or six guys that can can take the draft for you or five or six guys that can go back and get water bottles for you then that changes the dynamics of a bunch and also it changes the dynamics of a bunch in that i guess most guys learn who they're trying to beat they learn who the the team's working for but it it's yeah you're not racing every single person uh within the bunch um, so I guess that makes it somewhat different. I'd be interested to run some of the same studies that I've done uh, on on some road racing like that to to learn um, what what the major differences are. Um, I think one of the major differences, and I found this out in uh, track camp recently. We were doing some mock racing, and uh, some people that have more experience on on the road come off and like, "Whoa, that's so different to to how you would do it." on the road in the uh on the road like typically especially on a a sprint finish it's usually in somewhat of a straight line so uh from point a to point b is the same for for everybody in the race spot right, on the if you're track, on the left side of the road versus the right side of the road for the most part it's the same distance from where you are to the finish exactly yeah but on the track uh if you if you have to go around the outside you go in exponentially further and you have to go exponentially faster than faster than your opponent so i think there is uh, a distinct advantage especially when it comes to the last lap last lap and a half of any sprint uh, finish on the track to to already be in the lead because your opponents have to go so much significantly faster than you so it's not a straight drag race it's they have literally have to go further and faster than you to beat you and um, so i think that's a, a big difference between between the road and the track so then how you how you line yourself up for a sprint it, it's a little bit earlier um, you see guys that try launch the sprint with a lap to go and they're just way too late. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. You do see some of that dynamic on in road racing just of course, just depends on the, on the race, you know, like this past weekend saw Alexander Kristoff take a win in part. I, I chalked up to savvy, you know, being a, a KG old bike racer, there was a right hand bend within like 150 meters to go or something. So he had his, he had a teammate lead him out, and drop him off right there at that corner. And then the teammates swung to the left. So people who were trying to pass him, not only had to pass, you know, try to get past Kristoff, but also his teammates. So yeah, effectively adding, I don't know how many meters to their, to their sprint. And, and they were able to close on him, but in, so we're arguably going faster, but he had the, the shortest line and that one today. So I, yeah. I guess that's where the, the pacing profile of it comes in, right? It's, it's hitting the peak speed at the critical moment. You only have to, the, the finish line's in a very distinct place and you only have to be ahead of your opponents at that time. It doesn't matter who had the fastest uh, fastest speed in the, in the sprint, it's who's ahead at that very distinct moment in time, right? Sure. It's sort of like what you're saying about the performance being an onion. And yeah, if you've got a huge watt number, that's that's nice, but that's not how, <laughs> yeah. how, how races are won, right? You know, like, well, I, w- I worked harder than anyone else in this race. It's like, well, you led the first, 10 laps and then somebody came around you for the win exactly yeah and, and that's what confuses me when it the first thing that people want to see when they come off a race is the power file it's like well the race is not one on power <laughs> yeah yeah but that but that is a measurable thing right i think it's, it's fascinating to go yeah. back and look yeah, to yeah. see like you said like what's the ticket to get to even get in the game and for those of us who are just you know the, the armchair fans it, this the numbers whether they're watts or speed or vo2 max are mind-blowing 
so I think that's just a that's another fun part of it. It's, it's like that that uh, Olympic athlete level of physicality, and then the, you know the split second decisions to seal the deal. So could you give us some examples of some specific things you're studying? I said you mentioned you've been you know running you know, specific tests and modeling. Could you give us a few examples of what you've done as part of your PhD work? Yeah, so uh, all, all of my PhD is actually um, data collected from from in the field. Uh, so it's mostly a performance analysis of, of existing races. So mostly from the 2019 and 2020 season. Um, so I actually uh, video tag uh, did video analysis on all seven omniums from those races, which basically meant I uh, took took the video of the races and then every time. Uh, each of the each of the riders in the race went across the pursuit lines exactly halfway around the track. I, I tagged that person. I made a timestamp in in the video file. Um, so from that, I can then extract uh, one where they are positioned within the bunch, uh, and I can also extract the amount of time it's taken them to complete each half lap, and then do uh, an estimate of speed. It's not an exact uh, science because uh, I'm making the presumption that they're traveling around. The black line which they're not always so there is a little bit of noise within the data um but i get a huge data set basically at any normalized to half a lap i can see where everybody is at any given time in the race and and what speed they're traveling at, at an average of half lap um a half lap normalized um and and with that i've been able to um branch that out into a series of analysis that allows me to, to better understand uh, the, the things we were talking about before, so the pacing, uh, the, the actual determinants of how fast they need to be able to travel, so the peak half-lap speeds, the peak one-lap speeds, the peak like five-lap speeds, um, and uh, yeah, and then where they are in relation to each other uh, at critical moments in the race. And then how do you connect all this data to takeaway points for your athletes like Hoover? So you've got the, you know, you've got spreadsheets upon spreadsheets, how do you distill that down and, and give that to a rider or to a coach, you know, whether in Japan or United States, it's like, okay, here's, here's what we're trying to accomplish now. I, I guess uh, it depends on, on when and where that information is being given. Um, one of the things that I was really keen on doing is uh, I, I've gone into this and researched this and uh, found, found my own narratives out of the data that I'm seeing. And I think that was, Quite powerful in my own head and but in doing that I realized that actually this becomes quite powerful if I allow the athletes to help them make their own narrative as well like if they if I if I can show them data and present it in a certain way they think they can look at it and think and make those self-realizations of how the race is going themselves that's way more powerful than if I just say this is how the race is being won and um, they, they start to understand it and also, they understand it in a way that I never can in that I'm not up there doing the bike race. Um, so it's, it's all and good for me to say, I'll oh, be in this position at this time, um, but I'm not the one that's doing the bike race. I don't, I don't know how it feels to, to well, one, be able to put them kind of power outputs and things, right? And, and being able to try to make these decisions under this amount of uh, strain. So yeah that, that self-realization uh i think is it's really important for me so i'm not giving not just handing over this data to, to even the athletes that i'm working with because i don't think that's it's it's most useful tool i think the most useful tool it has is a way of thinking about the bike race so that they can uncover these patterns themselves 
because also they develop. Um, the the race is being raced in a certain way at the moment, but that's not to say that uh, the race will develop as more people get faster or even something like they change the gear they're riding or something like that will change change the way the race is being run. So I don't want to ever say, oh, the bike race is going to go this way because the second the bike race doesn't go that way, the athlete gets off the track and says to me, well, you told me it was going to go this way. Um, so yeah, the, it's more of a more of a tool and a way of thinking than than absolute. This is this is what it is. Um, but yeah, again, the the timing of of when some of this is delivered, when we're sat uh, far out from competition and we're sat doing uh, some video analysis or whatever of races to to get some learning from. And um, there's things things we can. It's always got to be delivered in a way that it's things that we can actually change. So. Going back to the physical, tactical, and strategical, um, we'll use the data to inform what we need to do in training in terms of the physical ability. So we can compare uh, Gav, for example, with everybody else that he's raced against in terms of physicality and that ticket to ride. And it's like, okay, he's finishing most of the time 95% of what everybody else can do. But if we make him 98, 99, 100% of what everybody else can do, then all of a sudden, the tactics that unfold in front of him don't matter because he has the arsenal physically to be able to deal with however the bike race goes. We're not trying to adapt him to uh, adapt the bike race to his strengths. We're, tr we're trying to adapt him to the to how the bike race, the different options the bike race can go. So there's that, but obviously that only can only be done uh, far out from from major competition. If I said to him a week before before a major competition, oh. This is uh, this is how not physically strong you are. That's probably not going to help. <laughs> um, <laughs> sure. So, so it, the timing of it is is critical. Uh, but then on on the day to day, like say if if it's been instilled and we've had these conversations and he's developed the thinking and developed the skill set and developed the ability to make those decisions within the race, like like you said about the on the day coaching is kind of the same. If he if he's got a plan and he's got a strategy and he understands the bike race and reduces the amount of decisions he has to make under under fatigue, then that's actually better than adding more knowledge to his plate. Tell me about the coaching behind a, you know, a rider, a competing rider taking a flyer. So yeah, say Gavin knows he could, has, has the legs to, to bridge up to this rider and could follow him. But it, you know, again, to me as a journalist and fan, it seems like there's always a bit of a, a risk and a gamble that like, one rider takes a flyer. There's a bit of a hesitation. Everybody wants somebody else to chase, but no one wants to be left out. Yeah. How do you, how do you build all those scenarios into the rider's mind of, of when to, to respond immediately and get up there or just sit and see what happens? Yeah. I think this comes back to what we were saying about understanding the context of which riders are where placed around you in, in the overall standings. Um, and this is a, a whole societal uh, factor that comes into into the bike race, where even even a rider that's not necessarily well placed in that specific race, but the rest of the riders know is a strong rider. If they launch an attack, a series of riders are gonna uh, gonna follow, right? And it's it's kind of reputation, and it's almost something that you want, and it's something Gav and I have actually spoken about, where he. He actually feels like he can race better now for having some more of that respect for for being one of those guys that people don't want to let go. Um, so it does change how you can ride the bike race. But I guess, I guess 
where the question is coming from is 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 it sometimes wasted energy to to bring the bunch back to somebody that's on a flyer um versus sometimes you will get the opportunity to to make that break away um it's a double-edged sword because again it depends on the context of who who it is that's making the breakaway if they're a direct threat to you then even if you have to put in the initial effort to drive the bunch again that collect when i talk about the uh, the dynamic of the, the bunch making its decisions, there's still a group of collective people that make a collective group of decisions together. So if you can be the driving force to accelerate that bunch and then swing up, the next person's going to have already made that acceleration. They're not likely to just sit up again. They're going to carry on that acceleration. So then the bunch does it with you. So it's little things like that. You don't, you don't have to take whole responsibility for bringing somebody back, but you certainly need to initiate that that responsibility because in doing so five or six guys are going to follow follow through behind you but uh if if you swing up then then the guy behind you swings up and the guy behind him swings up and all of a sudden that guy that uh was away in a breakaway has got half a lap or more um not by product of being particularly fast at going away just by product of the the dynamic bunch group's decision was was to sit up and it's not one person consciously made that decision but typically uh, the first or second person on the front will make that conscious decision as is the bunch driving or is the bunch sitting up? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Another example of, or an example of racing your own race, I thought Gavin displayed quite well in how he won the champions league. Uh, and I'm f- forgetting the name of the Italian writer that he was uh, battling for the overall lead with. It was the Spanish Torres. Was it Torres? Torres, yes, yes. So he, he had the lead, and all he had to do on paper was follow Gav around and not lose a single point to Gavin. Yeah. He could lose points to others. He just had to mark to stay on Hoover. And that's what he did and followed him like he was clamped to a seat post, um, whereas Gavin was seemed to be racing more uh, opportunistically, you know, trying to win the race, trying to get as many points as possible. And then towards the end of the race, there was a small hole that Gavin shot through. The guy who was marking him tried to follow, and that hole was no longer there. And instead of being focused on the, I'm waving my arms around like this helps on a podcast. And, you know, instead of being focused on all the other riders, uh, his competitor was focused solely on him and ended up losing his front wheel, taking some other riders out, and was was relegated for that. And um, I thought that was a a teachable moment just from my ignorant perspective of, of, you know, why you should ride your own race, so to speak. And that's, you know, that's certainly not an analytical PhD based take, but just sort of like the common wisdom of bike racing. It's common sense, right? I, I will roll that video out time and time again to any athlete I coach, because that is a perfect example of if you ride the bike race, then, uh, then you're going to give yourself a better opportunity. We actually had a phone call directly before, uh, before that competition, because it was between two rounds of London, so um, we weren't in the same country at the time, but we we knew there was a real shot of, uh, of Gav being able to win, but we we just knew we had to to beat Torres. But the uh, yeah, the challenge challenge we had was how how do we beat Torres? So I, I had the conversation with Gav, and it was like, well, if you finish first in the bike race, he can't beat you. Um, <laughs> so that so the philosophy was still always the same, like win the bike race. <laughs> Um, so that was Gav's mindset going in. And so nothing changed again, like when we talk about the context of where, where you are in an Omnium or where you are in a Champions League or whatever, 
Um, it doesn't matter if you, if you give yourself the best chance of winning the bike race, then nobody beats you. Right. Sure. Sure. And you know, sometimes that's a, a strength thing, right? Like with, you know, you speak about positioning in the good place to be and many riders know that, yeah, you should be near the front, not at the front for most of the time. But knowing that and doing that is two different things. It's like, how do you dunk a basketball? Like, well, you just jump and slam the ball through the hoop. <laughs> There's yeah, baseline ability required to, to accomplish it things. So you've been studying a lot of things. Are, are there elements of bike racing that you would like to be able to capture that you cannot? And if so, what, what is that? Or what are they like from a numerical perspective of like to measure like, okay, reaction times are this, or, 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 you know, is there, is there a, an ineffable feel to bike racing that you, you can't capture or can everything be measured? It's just a matter of having the, the right tools. Um, no, I, I think there is certainly are things that, that can't be measured. Um, and, and the, Perhaps the greatness in this is that win, winning bike races is the anomaly. So whenever we measure anything, uh, we're we're taking an, an average or uh, looking looking at um, the if we look at a whole bunch of people within a bike race, twenty in in case of an omnium, twenty three of them don't win the bike race. Um, so in terms of extracting that data, that's actually really meaningful. Is what we're actually trying to do is is take the pattern of this is what exists and this is how you have to actually be different to what that pattern is to, to win that bike race. So uh, that, that anomaly is as soon as it's measured, it's already happened. Um, so, so we're trying to do things that in turn haven't been done before. So that's a little bit of a gray area. That's not really an answer to your question though. <laughs> um, in terms of things that could be measured or, or would like to be measured, I think, I, I, I would love a way of being able to tap into a rider's mind throughout the bike race. Um, some kind of like mind reading technology would be phenomenal to, to understand what's actually going on through what, what, what their thought processes are, because I think that would help understand um, how, how, to, how to develop that as a ability to develop their race craft. I think, you ask the question uh, to, to any bike racer in the five minutes immediately after they get off the track, it was like, oh, that was hard. Every single time, <laughs> oh, that was hard. <laughs> so, so you're not really getting much in the way of actual meaningful feedback in that five minutes after. And then if you leave it 24 hours and if they've had a good result, they've been out and had a good time. And if they've had a bad result, they've walled at home and twisted everything in, probably twisted everything in their own heads about what actually went on. So again, the window to get good feedback and meaningful feedback about what they're actually thinking about when they're, when they're on the track is next to none. So if there was some way of, of getting real time live uh, feedback of, of what they're actually thinking about, then then I think that could really drive uh, the ability to coach that racecraft. But I'm not sure that's something that's ever going to happen. <laughs> sure. Sure. You've, in addition to coaching some of the world's best athletes, you've also in your career worked with everyday athletes are there some just general takeaway lessons that you would give to everyday amateur cyclists like many of our our listeners is how they can improve their competitive exploits, whether that's, you know, doing something on Zwift or, you know, just trying to, um, you know, improve against their friends or actually at a, at a bike race near them? Yeah, I think it's, it's been a long time since I worked um, not with, with elite athletes. Um, and I, I think 
my way of working and my philosophy and everything has probably changed dramatically in the last uh, four and a bit years in, in working with elite athletes. But I think the, the biggest take home for me with, with any athlete, whether amateur or elite, is just consistency. Um, it, if you if you want to get, and, and it's not even just being an athlete, it's just wanting to be good at anything. I mean, even writing my PhD, I think uh, I one of the things, I, I know I'm good when I write consistently. If I if I park it for a few weeks because I've got to go to competition or whatever, then it takes me a few weeks to get back into it, and that's never my best work. Um, so so consistency is always uh, my my top priority of like this, this is a non-negotiable. If you want to be the best in the world at something, you have to be cons- you have to consistently practice at it. Um, yeah, and then and then under that you have uh, the the amount you do it, but uh, the amount of something you do has to be purposeful. Um, so I, I like I really like a book by Anders Ericsson called Peak, uh, which talks about purposeful practice and the idea of the ten thousand hours theory. It's no good doing ten thousand hours of something if you're doing ten thousand hours of something badly. You have to do <laughs> ten thousand hours of thousand hours of something with purposeful practice. Um, so yeah, consistency, volume, and then on top of that, you can start to manip- manipulate some of the. Uh, in, in our case, usually how, how you distribute some intensity within that to manipulate your training to, to suit the uh, performance demand that you're aiming for. So consistency, purpose, and then specificity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right, those, are, those are three three takeaways even somebody like myself can wrap their brain around. So thank you for those. Well, Rob Stanley, performance scientist at USA Cycling and bike racing PhD, it has been a pleasure speaking with you. Uh, Thank you for your time, and I look forward to seeing you at bike races around the globe. Thank you, Ben. And that'll do it for us this week, folks. I'm your host, Ben Delaney, and I thank you for listening to the Velo News Podcast.